Let's stand together. We'll read our text tonight, Genesis 47, continuing our study through Joseph, uh, Joseph's life. Let's begin reading verse 1. It says, Then Joseph came and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brethren and their flocks and their herds and all they that they have are come out of the land of Canaan, and behold, they are in the land of Goshen. He took some of his brethren, even five men. I think that's interesting. I marked that in my Bible. He didn't take all of them. I bet he picked the ones that weren't going to embarrass him, right? And presented them unto Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said unto his brethren, What is your occupation? And they said unto Pharaoh, Thy servants are shepherds, both we and also all our fathers. They said moreover unto Pharaoh, For to sojourn in the land are we come, for thy servants have no pasture for their flocks, for the famine is sore in the land of Canaan. Now therefore we pray thee, let thy servants dwell in the land of Goshen. And Pharaoh spake unto Joseph, saying, Thy father and thy brethren are come unto thee. The land of Egypt is before thee, and the best of the land make thy father and brethren to dwell in the land of Goshen, and let them dwell. And if thou knowest any men of activity among them, then make them rulers over my cattle. So he, he gave them charge and uh, made them stewards of his own livestock. And Joseph brought in Jacob his father and set him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said unto Jacob, How old art thou? And Jacob said unto Pharaoh, The days of the years of my pilgrimage are an hundred and thirty years. Few and evil have the days of the years of my life been, and have not attained unto the days of the years of life my fathers and the days of their pilgrimage. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh. I thought it was interesting. He blessed him when he came in. He blessed him when he went out. I, I like that. He was a blessing by coming. And he also was a blessing when he left. He, he, man, don't you like that when somebody comes by your way and you think, man, that was a blessing, man. I, I enjoyed being with them. And Jacob was that to this man. I thought that was a, interesting to see. Verse 11, And Joseph placed his father and his brethren and gave them a possession of the land of Egypt and the best of the land, the land of Ramses, or Goshen, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph nourished his father and his brethren and all his father's household with bread, according to their families. I want to preach to you tonight about being fruitful in the middle of a famine. Being fruitful in the middle of a famine. Did you know it's possible? It's possible for you to be productive and fruitful in the midst of difficulty. It's interesting to me how God has lately been tying the Sunday morning and Sunday evening messages, not intentionally, but by His Spirit. He's been tying them together, and I think this one will kind of build on a little bit of what we saw this morning. Let's pray. Father, fill us with Spirit and help us tonight. We love you. We need you. Help us to be fruitful in a, in a barren land. Well, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for standing so long. You may be seated. In 1845, one of the greatest human tragedies in history took place. It was just like here in the book of Genesis. It was a seven-year famine. This particular famine was caused by a potato blight, which is a disease. and It ravaged the potato crop, which was essential to the country of Ireland, especially the poor people that lived there. During this seven-year famine, over one million people died. Another two million people immigrated to the United States and other places. And nearly 150 plus years later, the population of Ireland is still not to the level of what it was before this potato blight took place. It was a devastating, devastating uh, factor that took place in the history of this nation. Now, when we come to our text here tonight, we do not know as much historical information about Egypt's famine, but here's what we do know about it. We know as we come to the Bible, we know it's extensive. If you see in verse 13, it says there that he, it was in all the land. It was in all the land. 
So it affected it a very extensive uh, portion of the, the world and the population at the time. We also know based on verse 13 that it was very exhaustive. It says that it was very sore and that many people fainted or the land fainted. And, and so basically it was saying that the land was so desolate and, and, and so ravished by this famine that the land could not yield any more grain. We also know according to verses 14 and 15 that it was very expensive. It cost people their, their fortunes. It cost people their farms. It cost people their, their livestock. It cost people their lives. It was a very, very expensive famine. And what we find here is that Joseph's ingenuity and yes, even his shrewd politics saved Egypt and also the world from a catastrophe of so serious proportions. We did not read in our reading together, but if you were to go back and read verses 14 through 26, you'll find all of the things that Joseph did to try and save the land and spare the land. And here's what kind of happened in a nutshell. I'll just kind of give it to you so you kind of know what, what took place. What happened is a lot of people became serfs or tenant farmers. Meaning this, they could not really pay their bills, so they basically became indentured servants, yes, to the government, working so that they could have sustenance for their family. There was a 20% tax that was levied on them, and if you're thinking, well, 20%, that ain't nothing. No, no, that was something there, and, and uh, uh, it, it, some people thought, man, that seems awful harsh that he would impose a 20% tax levied on these farmers, but when you consider that many nations during that historical time frame were doing 40 to 60% levied taxes, he, he actually was doing a very good job in leading in this particular area. You also notice in this text that a lot of people were moved into the cities where the government could kind of sustain them and work through this seven-year famine. And it was interesting for me to read and study. There were many commentators that either praised Joseph for his shrewdness and his decision-making, but there were some that criticized Joseph and, and made it out to be like he was basically guilty of extortion. But I do think that there's a little clarifier in there. If you got your Bible open, and this is just kind of the geeky, normal things there, but look at verse 25. This is the people speaking. They said, Thou hast saved our lives. Let us find grace in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. And so in many respects, the people were praising the decision-making of Joseph. So however you, you look at this, that's kind of up to you to tr try and understand and filter through what Joseph did there. It does seem, based on what we know in his character, that he was an honest man, a man of great integrity, and he did a good thing in sparing and saving the nation in the decisions that he made. And it's also a reminder for those of us in leadership, you know, sometimes you just can't please everybody. You know, you're going to do one thing, and some are going to criticize it, some are going to like it, and some are not. And there's always somebody like we saw this morning that know better, and man, if I was in charge, boy, if I was running the country, this is what I would do, right? But I want you to know tonight, as we get into the preaching to this evening, the focus on this, of this message is not about land acquisition. And the focus of this message is not about diplomacy. I don't want to give you six takeaways about how to be a good politician, if that's possible. No, actually, I do think this text is, shows that it's possible for good and godly people to serve in politics and the need for people to be there like Joseph. And even though they're few and far between, there are some like Joseph that are there. They're doing their best and they're trying to make a difference. And this man did. But I don't think the focus is about land acquisition and I don't think the focus is on diplomacy. I think the focus is what we see in the title of my message. The focus of this passage is on the fruitfulness of Israel right in the middle of a big famine. You see God's people. Remember when Jacob came, he came with about 
maybe 70 people, and you see God's people began to flourish. And we know that by the time this book of Genesis is over and a few more years of time that go on and lapse, you're going to find that the population of, of Israel's family just booms and blossoms and is very productive. And, and they were really uh, taking uh, heed to the admonition that God gave back to their forefathers in the beginning of the book of Genesis, be fruitful and multiply. And they were doing that in the, right in the midst of a barren time. James Montgomery Boyce wrote this, Christianity is not something that requires ideal conditions to survive. It thrives best in the hardship. In our hardships, God's strength is made perfect in weakness, and godliness springs like a root from dry ground. I think that's the lesson that we take away from this text. You'll notice in this chapter that the family of Jacob did not escape the effects of the famine. They were affected by it. It's almost like if we read it carelessly, you see them that they're over in this little sliver of land called Goshen, and everything is hunky-dory. It's raining over there, and, and, and crops are growing over there, and, and money is just pouring out in buckets over there, but that's really not what happened at all. They were affected by the famine just like anybody else was. The Bible tells us that there was a sore famine in the land. It drove them out of Canaan to Egypt because of this problem, and so they were affected just like everybody else, but the difference was not that they were not affected by it. The difference was they were not consumed with it. I think that goes back to a little bit of what we said this morning. We are affected by the problems of our culture. We are affected by the problems of our government, the problems of the morality in our nation. But friend, we do not have to be overwhelmed by it. We do not have to be consumed by it. So this passage demonstrates to us that no matter, no matter how bad it may get here, God will keep His promises to His people. Look at verse 12, and Joseph nourished his father. Remember, Joseph said to him back a couple chapters ago, if you get down here, I'll take care of you. you. You be there and I will take care of you. And God has nourished us as we stay under the protection and provision of His mighty hand. And the Bible tells us here that as God took care of them through Joseph, God was fulfilling the promise that He made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that said this, I will bless those that bless you and I will curse those that curse you. And out of your uh, loins I will bring a great nation that cannot be numbered like the stars in the heavens and the sands of the shore. God was fulfilling that promise here. And I'll tell you tonight that God's people have always survived the dark periods of history. Always. You study the the history of the church or the history of God's people, and they've made it through famines. They've made it through many a corrupt political systems. And let me just remind everybody, uh, our nation, I know it's troubling to us because of what is happening because of the Christian heritage that our nation has, but I'll tell you, this is not the first corrupt nation where Christianity has flourished and been planted and found itself even fruitful. I think of our, our friends and brothers in, in China today where, where probably the largest number of, of saved believers of any country are probably in China. Of course, you say, well, they got a billion people over there. I know, but I'm telling you, Christianity can flourish anywhere where it's planted. It survived plagues, recessions, depressions, oppressions. It's thrived everywhere it's been. And so tonight, friend, we have a choice to walk by sight. And by walking by sight, that can be pretty depressing sometimes. Or we have a choice to walk by Scripture. Let me tell you, when we're around the Scripture, Scripture is very, uh, 
very optimal. I mean, it's very optimistic. It's a, it gives us hope when we walk by Scripture. While the world may be famishing, listen, I'm talking to Christians who should be flourishing. So you might be saying, well, how in the world do we do that? Well, this is not an exhaustive list, but this is what I, I try to take our thoughts from the Scripture. And so I want to turn to the Scripture tonight and the chapter that we're in, and I want to give you, and I'm going to try and preach a little bit, I'm going to give you two ways to be fruitful in the middle of a famine. Two ways to be fruitful in the middle of a famine. Number one, we're going to have to separate from what's wrong. We're going to have to separate from what's wrong. What we find in our text is it was a formality for Joseph to present his family to Pharaoh's court. And at the end of chapter 46, he coached his family about the Egyptians. He, he tells his family, listen, something you need to know about the people of Egypt is that they have a prejudice towards herdsmen. We don't exactly know why, but they did not like shepherds. They did not like people who, who dealt with livestock. And he tells them that. And so he says to his brother, make sure, because they're going to ask you about that. Isn't that what we all do? I mean, we, we ask people, hey, what do you do for a living? And when we get to know somebody, that's especially men, what do you do for a living? I remember one time I was playing golf in California, and I got paired up. Me and a buddy were playing. We got paired up with some other guys. And man, they were good. I think they birdied the first two or three holes. But boy, they cussed like sailors. About the fifth or sixth hole, the inevitable happened. One of them looked at me and said, what do you do for a living? I said, I'm a Baptist preacher. Oh, that's great. Yeah, great, awesome. Well, I appreciate this. I noticed that they stopped cussing. And they also stopped playing well. So I started cussing and got a few birdies. I'm, no, 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 I'm just kidding, I'm kidding. Joseph says to his fathers, they're, they're going to ask you what you do for a living, but he, he said, I'm going to tell you, here's what you need to do. Tell them that you're a shepherd. Tell them what you do. Uh, it was intentional because he did, not, he did not want the influence of Egypt to destroy their culture and religious life because what ended up happening is because they kind of, eh, you're shepherds, okay. They, they gave them this strip of land called Goshen and put them in this place that was green, and it was a fertile strip of land by the Nile River. And basically what happened is, is through that question and through that really shrewd politicking, God provided a place where a young nation could grow into a, a great nation. He gave them a separated place that they could build their homes and establish their lives and raise their children, and not allow the culture of the Egyptians to affect them religiously and culturally in the world in which they now found themselves. Friend, I'm going to tell you tonight, if we're going to be fruitful in a time of famine, we're going to have to be separated people. We're going to have to find a, a green, nourished pasture of land where we can plant ourselves and Raise our family. Listen, our culture is getting more and more rude. We need to teach manners to our children. Our culture is getting less and less religious, if you will. We need to teach faith to our children. Our nation is getting less and less patriotic. We need to teach patriotism to our families. Listen, we've got to find a place where we can just kind of find some, a little strip of land where we're not immersed in the culture of everything that's going on around us, and we can thrive and, and grow. You know, before 2020, I had never, in my life, maybe you had, I had never heard the words social distancing. 
Now that's just common language. Everybody knows about that. In fact, I saw a t-shirt not too long ago. said, I've been practicing social distance long before 2020. And I know some people are, you know, leave me alone. And they're hermits. And that's not what I'm really necessarily advocating here. What I'm advocating is not necessarily social distancing. I'm advocating scriptural distancing. I I understand what I'm trying to say to you doesn't mean that we necessarily separate ourselves physically. We need to uh, take heed to the admonition of our Lord that we are in the world, but we are not of the world. I'm not suggesting that we should be isolated from the world. Uh, I'm not saying, man, everything's getting so bad, let's just get some kind of hippie commune in the hills and grow our own organic tomatoes and let the world go to hell. That's not what I'm trying to say here tonight. I'm simply saying we don't necessarily have to isolate ourselves, but we do need to insulate ourselves. If we're going to be fruitful, yes, we do. It's that old proverb, and I like it. A boat was designed and made to be in the water, but water was not designed. We don't want water in the boat. And friend, I want you to understand that that's exactly what the church needs today. We need to be people that are in this world, but we don't have the world in us. And it's frightening to me. Like Habakkuk, to look around and see the problems before us, it's frightening to me to see how much of the world has crept into the church and now separation's like a dirty word among God's people. And people shy away from those kind of ideas that are still scriptural there. And we wonder why the church is not being fruitful in its time of famine. This doesn't mean that we should not have any friendships with unbelievers. How are we going to reach a world we never touch? How are we going to lead others to Christ that we don't engage? That, that's not what I'm suggesting. I'm not suggesting that we avoid partnerships with unbelievers. I'm just simply saying that we need to keep a safe distance from the influences of our ungodly world. The need for separation from this world, according to the Bible, is not optional. It's critical. We need to make sure that we practice it. You say, what are you talking about? Let me preach a little bit tonight. I hope you understand what I'm talking about. I think ecclesiastically, we need to be separated people. You say, ecclesiastically, that's a fancy word. I'm talking about church life. In order to make a difference, we've got to be different. And I think every once in a while, I just need to state this and say this to let people know who we are and where we plan to go. Uh, I'm not trying to imitate the world here at Oakwood Baptist Church. I believe that the world, they may not be looking for God. Remember, man, everyone's turned away from God. We're all sinners, none righteous, no, not one. I understand all of that. But I believe this, the world is not looking for a cheap imitation of itself. I've got friends that have read business books and try to turn their church into a business model. I'm not saying we shouldn't practice good business principles here in the church. We try to be responsible with our finances. We try to be organized in our administration. But I'm not going to necessarily want to read a book about Disney World and turn our parking lot into a grand experience for everybody that comes in. Again, I'm not not trying to be ugly tonight. I'm not trying to be mean, but I've seen churches where they have little kids out there with signs. We're glad you're here. And they've got tents and they give them goodies and treats as they come in. And everything is like a carnival when you're coming to church. Where did they get those ideas? They got them from the world. They're trying to imitate what's going on in the world. Now, I'm not saying that we should stand at the door and just be mean to everybody. What are you doing here? No, I mean, again, I want to have a good experience when they come to Oakwood, but I'm not trying to turn this into Disney World. We don't need fog machines and 
tap dancers and all kinds of things going on to entertain the video. The preacher doesn't need to juggle chainsaws while he's preaching. We don't need all of that. See, the church should not be a cheap imitation of the world. It should be an alternative to the world. Man, I, I so desperately want you to be able to come for a couple of hours each week, a little bit on Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night and just have a reprieve from all of the mess that's going on around. Then just come in and sit down. I know it's old-fashioned, but on an old-fashioned pew and take an old-fashioned Bible and hear somebody in an old-fashioned way just open it up and preach and teach God's Word and just say, hey, you know, for a while the cell phone can be off and the entertainment can be off and all of this stuff can be off and we can just focus on the glory and the greatness of God instead of trying to pretend like we're a part of this world and try and act like the world and mimic the world and be like the world. No, just take a time out from that so that we can have a fruitful place for our young people to grow and flourish. We need to separate it not just ecclesiastically, we need to separate from it personally. Listen, some of you work in the world. I, I don't have that advantage. I work here in a Christian environment, and I, I could make some jokes right now, and I'm not going to, but we have a wonderful staff. We have people that love the Lord and love His church and, and, and love being a part of the ministry, and I'm thankful for that. And I, I, I get to be a part of that environment. Some of you work in the world every day. You work with people that maybe they profess Christ, but they don't really live for Christ. Maybe they don't even profess Christ and they don't want to profess Christ. You work and live among them. And what I'm about to say, I think you would agree with me, is that even people in the world expect Christians to be different. They don't expect you to use the same words they use. Watch the same shows they watch. Have the same morals that they have. Go to the same venues that they attend. They, they, they expect you to be different. But friend, what has happened is far too many of God's people have said, you know what, I don't want to be strange. I don't want to be thought strange. I I don't want to be thought an outcast. I, I want to be accepted in the world in which I find myself. And so therefore, we have adopted the same dress as the world. And, and again, I'm not saying that we need to look like we're from Little House on the Prairie and we need to uh, be some kind of backwoods bizarro. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I mean, I, I, I hope I have a nice tie on here today and I don't look like a... I'm not wearing a leisure suit tonight. I don't have corduroy bell-bottoms on tonight. My dad got married. I had a bow tie this big and a ruffled thing. It was baby blue. It looked ridiculous. <laughs> I'm not wearing that tonight. But you and I both know that there's some fashions in this world that are seductive. They're immodest. They're, they're not appropriate. They're not anything Christian. And, and listen, we, we, don't, we don't need to go there. And then what I get kind of tired of is that when any preacher jumps on that, everybody gets uncomfortable. Shouldn't be uncomfortable. Every Christian ought to be like, that's right. We don't look like the world all the time. We don't listen to the same music the world listens to all the time. You and I both know that the the music of this world is ungodly and filthy. We all know it. So why do Christian people listen to it? 
You know that I get on to things like entertainment sometimes, and every once in a while, you know I don't harp on this, I just try and preach the text, but I'm saying, I noticed that these people were fruitful because they were not immersed in the culture in which they found themselves. They had a different way of living, and you and I have to have a different way of thinking. We cannot adopt the same philosophies of this world. It is amazing to me how many people who call themselves Christians are starting to be worn down by the immorality of the homosexual crowd and the immoral crowd, and they're starting to embrace the ideology of the world. Friend, we'll never be fruitful in this world adopting the philosophies and the rudiments of this world. No, sir. I don't think we ought to be unkind. I don't think we ought to be mean. I don't think we ought to be nasty. I think we ought to try and reach people with the gospel. And I don't care what the sin is called. Sin is sin. And we all have a sin problem. And we all need a wonderful Savior to save us from it. But friend, we cannot drink the Kool-Aid of our world. We cannot adopt the modern psychology and, the, and the, the thought process of our world. Oh no, friend, it is reprobate. It is backwards. They are calling right wrong and wrong right. And we ought to never adopt that kind of thinking if we want to be fruitful in a barren land. I'm telling you tonight, the more corrupt our culture becomes, the greater we have a need for separated people. And by the way, tonight, I know so far I've said that separation, I've kind of spoke of it in a negative light where we just need to depart from sin. But listen to me, help me, help me out tonight. Separation is not just the negative aspect of departing from sin. It is also the positive aspect of dedicating ourselves to God. Why do I say no to that? Because I've said yes to this. Why do I reject that? Because I love this. Why, why would I distance myself from that? Because I've embraced this. And I'm afraid far too many preachers have preached against things that they've never taught something in a positive light. Listen, there's a wonderful way that God wants you to walk. And He says to all of His people, you can bear fruit. You can have the fruit of the Spirit. You can be a person of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance in an age where none of that is hardly found. And it's from rejecting this so that you can embrace this. We should look at the world and keep a certain distance from it. But also look to God and keep a close proximity to Him. And I'm afraid, let me just warn us all, and I'll move on, don't allow yourself to find, uh, to find you in a place where the world was a few years ago. I'm afraid sometimes we we look back and, and we say, well, you know, I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad, but really, we're, the world has progressively waxed worse and worse, and we've kind of moved along and shifted. I think we need to be very, very careful about that. Let's separate from what's wrong if we want to be fruitful. Number two, let's stay true to who you are. I point your attention again to verse three. I love that question. I circled in my Bible, what is your occupation? What is your occupation? This is a very soul-searching question. It caused them to consider their ways. You know, what do you do? I think we all ought to ask ourselves that question. Do, do my ways please the Lord? Is what I'm doing, is it acceptable to the Lord? I think we ought to examine ourselves every once in a while and ask that question. It was also a, a humbling question. It's a humbling question because Joseph warned them. You're going to tell them you're a shepherd, they're not going to be impressed. They don't like shepherds. They have a prejudice against shepherds. I've told you this story before. I'll tell it again. Years ago when I was an assistant in Iowa, 
Uh, there was a big shopping mall. How many remember what a shopping mall used to be, right? There was a big shopping mall, and it had a, had a huge carousel right in the middle of it in Iowa City, and our family would drive. There was about 30 minutes or so from where we lived, and we would go up there sometimes to go to a, a nicer restaurant or to go shopping. And uh, Molly was a little girl then, very little girl, maybe three, four years old, and we would go to that shopping mall, and she'd always want to ride the carousel. And for some reason, I needed to go up there, and I, I, my, the, the pastor that I worked for wanted you to wear a suit and tie every day, wear a coat and a tie to work every day. When I became a pastor, I, I kept that model, and then one day I was sitting there, and I thought, wait a second, I'm the pastor now. Why am I wearing this? But I was wearing a suit and tie. I, had, I remember I had a black suit on, a white shirt, and a yellow colored tie. I remember it. I took little Molly to the carousel and I was standing there. I did not ride that day. She was riding around on that carousel by herself, going up and down, and I was standing there. And the guy that was operating the carousel, he looked at me and he said, he said, man, you look sharp. I said, well, thank you, sir. He said, you a lawyer or something? I said, no, sir, I'm a preacher. And he went, oh. I thought, oh, man. I am lower than a lawyer. <laughs> That's bad. You know, all joking aside, what he did is he looked, Nathan, he, he would have been impressed if I was a lawyer. I mean, a nice suit and passed the bar, an intelligent person, uh, assuming that I, I had money and that I, I was somebody of significance. But when he found out I was a preacher, he, he kind of looked at me with some disdain. And, you know, that's a constant reminder that our world oftentimes laughs and ridicules and, and discredits our values. They, they look at a preacher and think, what a waste. You don't, I, I know with this crowd you don't feel that way, at least most of you. But sometimes there is a measure of, of reproach to a pastor that's being introduced in a, in a, a world that, that merits how much money you have and how many degrees you possess and the significance that you make in this world. And they look at you and they, they would say, what a waste. Why would you do that? And these people had to stand before the most powerful man in all the world, robed in great splendor, riches and opulence all around him. And he says to them, what's your occupation? And they said, we're shepherds. He says, my father was a shepherd and his father before him was a shepherd. All my sons are shepherds. Working with sheep is all we've ever known. It took a matter of, of humility as they were looked at with disdain and ridicule. And I just want to encourage the church tonight. You know, a lot of times the world laughs, it ridicules, it discredits our values. But I'm not trying to push the amen button, but here's what I'd like to say tonight. Let them. Because eternity is going to straighten out the situation. And I want you to notice that Jacob was not ashamed of who he was. I see in this, in this text, I see Jacob. Oh, I see him in humble, humble shepherding garb, weary and tired after a long journey. And if you remember anything about Jacob's life, remember he wrestled with the Lord and, and forever, until God took him home, he walked with a limp. And I see him in his haggard ways, 130 years old in, in shepherd's garb. I see him hobbling in into the presence of Pharaoh with his head held high, unashamed of who he was. 
What's your occupation, sir? I'm a shepherd. It's what we do. It's who we are. And I take note of him tonight that as Jacob was not ashamed of who he was, and, and by the way, Joseph was not ashamed of who his father was either. And he answered the question, who are we? And I was trying to think about that because I always want to apply it. I'm, I'm going to say this and we'll get out of here tonight. But it made me pause as I was studying for this message. It made me pause and ask the question about Oakwood Baptist Church. Who are we? I mean, who are we? And every once in a while, it's good to just stop and answer that question. Who are we? There's a lot of things that we could say tonight, but I'm just going to say a few. I just took our name, Oakwood Baptist Church. First of all, I'll say, who are we? We're Oakwood. That's not uncommon language around here, is it? Where you go to church? I go to Oakwood. Where you go to school? I go to Oakwood. Go to Oakwood. We don't call it Oakwood Baptist Church all the time. We just call it Oakwood. I want you to think about what an oak is. An oak symbolizes stability and it symbolizes strength. And then I hope that God would, would let us be exactly what our name bears. A place of stability and strength. Our church has been here since the early 1900s ministering and it stood the test of time. And like a mighty oak that has deep roots down in its community, Oakwood Baptist Church has weathered many a storm. Sometimes lightning has crackled its branches. Sometimes the winter's chill has, has gripped its, its, its roots, but it's still standing strong. And I hope that what we do here is we create a place that is strong for our families and our children to find shade under its branches and fruit from its trees. Why? Because we bear a resemblance to the name of who we are, stability and strength. And as the world changes its ideas and says you ought to be this and you ought to be that, we just stand like a mighty oak and say this is who we are. We're Oakwood Baptist Church. I know a lot of people get scared at that name. And I'm going to tell you tonight, and I'm not trying to get you to say amen, and I know we have people from different backgrounds who have joined us, and I'm thankful for that. But I am not ashamed to be a conservative Baptist. Baptist is what identifies our body of doctrine. And I understand that New Testament believers weren't always called Baptists. I'm well aware of Baptist history. They weren't always called the same thing, but they've always embraced the same body of doctrine. And I could go through the Baptist acrostic with you. Bible's the uh, authority of all faith and practice. We believe in the autonomy of the local church. We believe in two offices. I could go down all of those things to you, but I'm glad we embrace the doctrines that identify who we are. This is a denominational label that represents the biblical doctrines that we hold, and we should never be ashamed of that. Listen, I understand that there's a world out there that's just looking for people, they're looking for a preacher who'll give them sermons on how to, have a, how to have a happy life, how to do this and how to do that. And we do a lot of that here. There's a lot of practical training here. But I think at the end of the day, we need to know what we believe and why we believe it. And by the way, let me just say this to you. We ought not ever get upset when we hear strong Bible doctrines. I heard somebody give an illustration. It's not unique to me, but I, but I liked it. You know, sometimes people come into a church like ours and you get up and you preach doctrine and they get mad. But that makes no sense. You came to a Baptist church. 
Somebody said this, it's like going to Ruth's Chris Steakhouse and complaining the menu isn't vegan. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. This is who we are. This is what we serve here. We serve it with a smile. We like it. But down here, we're Oakwood Baptist Church. This is not a social club. I bear that burden as a pastor. I hope you don't mind me preaching a little bit tonight, but I bear that burden as a pastor because a lot of people come and they, they're looking for friendships. They're, sometimes people come looking for a date. They come looking for friends. And I hope you find all of those things here. I'll tell you, this is not a social club. It's not why we exist. This isn't eatharmony.com. It's Oakwood Baptist Church. When I was a youth director, our church had a military ministry. We also had a bus ministry. And I was a bus captain. I pulled up an apartment complex. This, this lady, she was in her 20s. She jumped on a bus and she, she looked at me and, and she said, Hey, is this this church that's got all the soldiers? I said, Yeah. She said, All right, I'm coming. She sat down. She said, I've been all over this town. I've been in every bar in this town. I've been in every place in this town. I can't find me a good man. I heard you got soldiers over there. I didn't tell her they were coming in the evening service, not the morning service. But I dead sure was going like this. <laughs> Listen, I think sometimes people put the responsibility, the weight of the responsibility on the church to fulfill all their social needs. But we're a church. We're not an entertainment venue. I don't mind you laughing. We do a lot of things that we have a good time. Listen, I think there's joy in serving Jesus. There's a thrilling, exciting life in living for the Lord. But, but again, that's, that's not why we exist. A church is a called out assembly of believers that has been gathered together to fulfill the Great Commission. And what is the Great Commission? It's to evangelize the lost. It's to educate saints. And it's to uh, elevate us to a godliness in our lives. That's our mission and that's what we're here for. And I think so many people have forgotten who they are. And when you forget who you are, you will not be fruitful. Amen. Some of you had an old-fashioned mom or dad when you were leaving the house. They might even said that to you. Don't forget where you came from. Don't forget who you are. Friend, we can never forget who we are because when we do, we lose our moral compass. We lose our identity and we will never be fruitful. And that's why I feel, and I'm not trying to be hypercritical, but you've seen churches do this they forget who they are. They don't know who they are. And that's why they have one service that tailors to this crowd and another service that tailors to this crowd because they have no idea who they are. And I just, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be snarky or cute, but I want our services to be tailored not to you, not to me, but to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we haven't forgotten who we are and why we exist. But let me ask you a question. Are you producing spiritual fruit in the midst of a spiritual famine? Listen again, I, I want Oakwood Baptist Church and its subsequent ministries to be an oasis to your homes. And again, there's so many other things that I could say, and every preacher plays this game in his mind Sunday night. I wish I would have said this, and I wish I wouldn't have said this. But you know, we have people in our ministry, especially in our school ministry, 
that, that, that to them, maybe, maybe, maybe that school is just, is just an alternative to the public schools. Listen, I'm trying to create a land of Goshen where people can be fruitful. And I hope the families of this church have found a place, a little strip of land, in the midst of a time of famine, where they're getting some nourishment, some water, a blessing for their souls. Question number one, are you living a separated life? Is your home separated? Or is it just like everybody else's? Is our church separated? Who are you? Do you, do you know who you are and what you believe, why you believe it? I guess I could put it this way. What, what do you value? Where do you find your identity? So a great final question for us here. Who are we? Who are we? Hope we all know. Because when we know and we've got it settled, it'll help us be fruitful in the midst of a famine.